a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray as we turn to the explanation of God's word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to hear these words and to spend this time considering what it is that you've said in your word. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us sort out what is contained in your word. Uh, Lord, may we hear the voice of the Spirit speaking to us. May we clarify uh, what is and what is not being said. Uh, Father, we don't often see this kind of thing taking place in the church, and so the relevance of the story may be lost on us if we're not careful. We pray that you would teach us. Father, help us to see that, that sin is serious. Help us to see that you are kind and gracious, for on a surface reading, this story certainly does not seem to teach that. And Help us to learn the lesson of holiness, we pray this morning. We ask this all in the precious and sweet name of the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, the scriptures have a verse that I think sums up much of what we find distracting or disturbing or or harsh about God's character. In different passages of the scripture, we can, 
we can find the kindness of God on display and we see him as loving and sweet and, and we look at the character of Jesus or we, we see um, some, some kind of mercy shown and we say, isn't God loving? And then there are other passages where we see God saying things like, destroy this city or, or we find uh, somebody falling down dead like in this passage or, or we see judgment and punishment and, and, and it is difficult to try to mix the two and we say how can these two characters exist in God's character? Paul sums up, we were discussing this morning in Sunday school how, how some of the most important chapters most confusing chapters, but some of the most important chapters of the Bible show up in Romans 9 through 11. As Paul sums up this great argument as he, as he defends God's character, he says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There is a, a place in uh, C.S. Lewis writings in, in the book, uh, the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, where the children realizing that they are being pursued by the wicked queen decided it's time to head, uh, at, led, led by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, it is time to go and to meet Aslan. And as, as Mr. Beaver describes Aslan, he says that he is a fierce, fearsome and harsh lion. And one of the girls says... Uh, a lion? We're, go we're going to see a lion. Are, are you sure he's quite safe? Mr. Bieber says, he's, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Uh, we, in our culture, tend to think of things that are good in terms of soft and fluffy, right? Or, or warm and, and filling, you know, pillows and oatmeal. We don't tend to think of things that can kill us as good. But if you just pull back a second and think about cars and medicines, those are things which are good, which contain elements of danger. We see God's character in this story, and I think viscerally, you know, our flesh crawls and our insides turn, and we say, this is not good. God is not safe. We need to take care when we follow him, how we follow him, and with what kind of heart we follow him. This shocking story that we see here takes place after the church has uh, achieved this, this kind of age of, of sharing, of, 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 um, of, of common uh, pooling of resources. People are bringing things of their own free will, having, having sold them or giving them to the church, and the church is pooling its money that those who have needs might have them met. And the Bible says that there were no poor among them. We talked about that two weeks ago. On the heels of that story of Barnabas giving after he sold his sole piece of land, throwing in his lot with the church and giving all of this money to the church and receiving some acclaim for that, we see that a man named Ananias, together with his wife, sells a piece of property. He and his wife then agree and conspire to keep back some of the proceeds of the sale and bring only a part of it, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. The next Two major sections of this passage detail how Peter inquires of them whether they gave the whole price whereupon they answer the question and each of them dies in succession. This seems extreme. 
Why this shocking story? One reason, I believe, is that Barnabas gave from the heart, and they did not. The scripture says that they kept back a portion of the price. Peter is very clear that it is their prerogative to do so. There's no compulsion in giving in the church, by the way. Uh, The scriptures lay out in the Old Testament a standard of giving 10%. People will come to me and say, is tithing biblical? Must I tithe? I, I like to try to avoid saying yes or no immediately and to try to get to the, to the heart. If somebody is tithing because they think that giving 10% will earn them points in the eyes of God, that's missing the point. It's missing it totally. 10% was the Old Testament standard. I think it's a good standard to begin with. It keeps God's people humbler, more dependent than those in the same earning class as them. It keeps them 10% poorer and more dependent upon God. They are always, hopefully, in that sense, more humble than those who are exactly like them. But where is it in the Bible that says that God cannot require your all from you? I've known several people, one of them the president of the university that I used to go to, Robertson McQuilkin, who gave up to 80% of what he earned to world missions. You could tell by his wardrobe and the car that he drove that he had no money. Why stop at 10%? But here's the thing. Giving is from the heart, not from requirement. We do not give to earn. We give because we believe in the mission of the church, and we give because we believe that God will use these gifts to further his kingdom, which is moving through men and women who are speaking God's word, and they need resources to advance the mission. We don't give to earn the affection of God or to to earn points with God. We give because we have been given much. We give impoverishing ourselves because Christ impoverished himself, and we have become rich because of his poverty. That's what the book of 2 Corinthians says. It says that they kept back a portion of the proceeds. The problem is not that they kept some of what God entrusted them with for themselves. It's that they were acting as if they had given it all. Barnabas had given all, and they, following in his wake, were pretending that they gave it all, but they agreed, they conspired to keep back some for themselves. This is an interesting Greek word, and I'll point out why it's interesting in just a couple of moments. The word nosphizo, it shows up in the Septuagint. That's the, the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The goal of Ananias and Sapphira's giving was not to serve the Lord, although that may have been in their hearts and minds somewhere, but their goal was to attain similar acclaim and glory to Barnabas by selling and giving. But it's an empty, false glory. Do you guys remember the very first time you bit into a chocolate bunny and discovered it was hollow? I mean, I don't know about you, but this is like a significant crushing event for me. I mean, fill that thing up with peanut butter or something. You've got all this wasted space. You're handing this thing to, apparently they used to be solid. Is this true? 
Yeah, they used to be solid, right? You know, we're just, this is, this is back to the 1980s. Where's the beef, you know? Like, like you're, 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 you're pretending that you're something that you're not. It's fake. It's hypocritical. It is hypocrisy. Their goal was to attain similar glory externally, but not from the heart. They were doubtful of God's ability to provide for them. They were doubtful of God himself. They found security, though. They wanted praise in the church, but they found security in keeping some of the world's riches for themselves. This is one of those backwards lessons that only can be learned through the providence and care of God. When we have little, we must trust big. And when we have much, the danger is to trust less and to shift into security mode and to conserve what we've got because that is what we have to work with. We, we move from depending fully on God for all kinds of things and into providing for ourselves. We become less dependent when we have more. This is why Proverbs 30 is so profound for the believer. If you read through the book of Proverbs every month, Sometimes you get to skip Proverbs 31, but you encounter this passage every single month. The idea that the, that the Proverbs writer, he says, I ask two things from you, Lord. Don't make me so poor that I curse you, nor make me so rich that I forget you. Constantly in dependence. In some sense, we will always have our feet in both worlds. The physical world where working and earning and saving and being thrifty and, 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 and taking risks, that's one world we will live in until the moment we die. But we also live by faith in that world, trusting in God's ability to provide for us. That's why you can take a portion of your income and say, use it, Lord, trusting that he's going to continue to give more. The problem here is not that they had their feet in both worlds and were confronted with anxiety and worry and how will we provide for ourselves. That's not the problem. The problem is when their faith winked off, when, when they doubted, it gave birth to a sin. We, we as Christians as anxious as we might be, as nervous as we might be, we need to leap into the Christian life with both feet. We need to trust. I think there's a lot of illustrations of this in modern life. Have you ever tried to get into a boat and you're just kind of uncertain as you're doing it? You got one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. Pretty soon, you, and really soon, you got to make a choice. You're either going to jump into that boat and risk damage to your face or you're going to stay on that dock and risk falling into the water. Uh, but you've got to make a choice, and you've got to do it quick, or you will wind up nowhere. You'll wind up in the drink. You can't skateboard with one foot permanently on the ground. You have to commit yourself. We were on the merry-go-round earlier this week while we were taking family pictures, uh, and, and one of my children, I'm not sure it all happened so fast, figured out that you can't push the thing and try to stand still at the same time. Uh, you're holding on to that bar as that thing is spinning. This is why all the public schools have removed them. They used to be there when I was a kid. Uh, but if you, if you hang on to that thing and your feet don't go with you, it pulls you and you get smashed. 
In the Christian life, we need to either trust God or not trust him, but let's not lie about who we are. They said, we trust God, we give all of this money, lying to the church. Because what they wanted was the glory that came with being viewed as people of great faith while not being people of great faith. Don't mistake what I'm saying. Acts 5.4 says that giving is voluntary. We give because we love, not because we have no right of stewardship. God gives us all the things that we possess. We're called to be faithful with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. God gave you a spouse. He's given you children. He's given you, perhaps for a time, the blessing of being single. He's given you a job. He's given you the ability to earn. He's given you properties, things, friends. You are a steward of those things. You do not own them in the truest sense of the word. But while you are a steward of them, you choose how they are used. Be faithful. This is what Paul says, continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive. For Ananias and Sapphira to sell the land and then to pretend to turn it over the church while keeping back some for themselves is only to open themselves up to judgment because they could have kept whatever they wanted and given whatever they wanted. They could have kept the land. They could have given all the money away. They could have done whatever they wanted with it. It's theirs to use. The problem is wanting to be thought much of while making no sacrifice. Let me point out something interesting just kind of as an aside here as we, as we move on. Notice that the Holy Spirit is not some strange energy force. I'm nervous finding out that Disney has bought Lucasfilm and that three more movies are coming out. Um, imagine the danger now that they'll be full of fuzzy, silly acting little creatures, right? That's already happened. That was a joke for all you Star Wars fans. Um, the, 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 the danger that I see is that churches, being the cool kind of hip things that they are, will, they're going to they're gonna see these new Star Wars movies and they're going to be like, oh, isn't that a wonderful influ- in- illustration of the Holy Spirit? The Force. They're going to show all these movies and clips. And stuff. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a he. And he has a personality, and he does stuff, and he is deity. And we'll see his personality later. I think that's in Acts chapter 16. But notice that the Holy Spirit is not just this thing. It's not this energy source that is laid hold of for good or for evil. The Holy Spirit is God himself. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit can be lied to. Look at this, what he says at the end of chapter 4, or verse 4. Um, Peter says, you have li- not lied to man, but to God. The implication being what? That the Holy Spirit himself is God. Interesting. Um, moving on. Satan fills the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to lie. Satan fills the heart when the heart is open to his attacks, when we do not um, empty ourselves of the desire of the world, when we are not careful about guarding our eyes 
and our heart about what is coming in. The scripture says that he filled Judas. He manipulated Peter in Matthew chapter 16. You remember this moment? I believe some of our most successful moments as Christians are our most dangerous moments. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 6, Let everyone watch themselves. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay? Illustration. Peter, standing there, hears Jesus say, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, correct answer. You, you are most blessed for having been given the ability by the Spirit of God to give this answer. Amazing, Peter. Wonderful. They know who Jesus is. Okay, that's Matthew chapter 16. We know that. Then immediately following that, it says, Jesus began to teach them that he would go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you lose a thousand points, Peter. You were ahead. You were awesome. And it is all gone. <laughs> you, you messed up. The, 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 the devil is able to attack and sift and enter when we are not careful. The Bible says that by, by nature, he is our father. That's John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. When we receive salvation by trusting in Christ, we become open to God's grace. The Holy Spirit enters and fills us and leads and guides, but that does not mean we do not have to defend ourselves. Interesting. Who is Peter to pronounce judgment on these people? Anybody that bother anybody? You know, this is the, the guy who denied Jesus. This is, this is the guy who lost a thousand points when he gave the wrong answer. Who is he to judge them? There's a difference here of the quality of the sin. It's not a sin of infirmity, like I was scared and I did the wrong thing. This is, this is not, um, you know, I, I looked and, 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 and I couldn't control myself, you know, or, um, you know, we're, we're sorry, we lied. No, this is a sin of pride. This is a sin of vainglory. This is wanting the applause of men and being willing to hatch a plan and to conspire to get there. And so they are judged for it. We'll talk a little bit more about why this is just in, in just a few moments. I've got I to get moving. We commit this sin ourselves when we conspire in our minds to do that which we know is wrong. I'm not talking about when someone says, you know how your kids behave today? And you're suddenly like, Grr. do you know how your kids behave? Who are you to judge me? You know, the anger that when somebody says that sermon was so long and you're like, you know, and you, you none of you ever say anything like that, by the way, though. Maybe because I regularly say don't say that. Um, but 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 when when sin bubbles up, it is it is a sin. Those are sins of infirmity. When we conspire in our minds and we say, "I will do this thing to 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 make myself look better or to manipulate people around me," we commit a different kind of sin. It's interesting that this story is a. New Testament echo of a story that's found in the book of Joshua. The people of God have won a tremendous victory at Jericho by fully trusting in the Lord. They go out each day and they circle the city. 
with the ark, dressed up. They do exactly what God says. They circle the city and then they go home. On the seventh day, they circle it seven times. And then on the seventh pass, they blow trumpets. And then they shout. And God tears down the walls of the city of Jericho. But this is what God says. Every battle is going to be like this. I am going to win it for you. I will be the power behind the battle. That's, that's the illustration of Jericho. But he says, because I'm going to do this, you're going to do nothing to win this city. Everything, every bit of spoil, every bit of treasure that, that is left in this city, when the walls fall down and the city is destroyed, every bit of loot is mine. Leave everything. But Achan sees it, and he takes some for himself. And he keeps it. He hides it underneath his tent. Within the next couple of days, the children of Israel go up to attack a small city named Ai. And they, they send 3,000 men up and the, they lose a number of men and they are completely routed. And Joshua says, why has this happened? And they draw lots because God says, I'm no longer going to be your God. I'm not going to travel with you because you don't respect me. I'm leaving. And Joshua says, no, 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 don't do that. We'll find out what the sin is and we'll purge it from among ourselves. And they cast lots over and over again until they find Achan. And Joshua says, give glory to God. Achan says, I saw and I took the treasure and I hid them. And then when the battle turned sour, Achan does not say this, but I, I believe this is implicated in the story. He did nothing to address the fact that he had sinned and now other people were dying. He defiled Israel. So the Bible says that they took him and his family and they raised a great heap of stones over him. They purged sin from among themselves. What does this story teach us about the church? A man and his wife lie to the church and then they die. Foundational lesson is that sin causes death. This is the human predicament, brothers and sisters. Each and every one of us. We can, we can say, I'm a good person, if by that we mean I don't drive as fast as I can every single time I get in my car, you know. I don't, like, take lollipops out of children's hands, you know. I don't, I don't kick dogs, you know. Like, yeah, we're good people. But at the heart of it, all, any goodness that we show to other people does not earn God's favor. Because... We are broken by our sin, and by our goodness, we cannot overcome that. We need a sacrifice. And over and over through the scriptures, we see all this sacrificial language, which illustrates the truth that one man came to die. He took the sins of the world upon himself, being infinitely God. His sacrifice is able to apply to all who would believe in him, that they might be free from their sin. Every sin we have ever committed canceled out because of Christ's righteousness. We receive his righteousness for ourselves. Our sins are put on him. Sin requires death to pay for it. That's the nature of who God is. He is loving, yes, but he is completely just at the same time, and he demands that something be punished and his wrath be satisfied. There would be no basis for justice in the human world if all sin did not need to be punished. None. Let me point something out. The church in the book of Acts up to this point has been absolutely unstoppable. Nothing has stood in its way. Not persecution, not oppression, not people saying stop preaching, 
No difficulty has stood in its way. What pulls the church up short, what, what threatens to stop the presence of the Spirit in their midst. You remember in Acts 4.31 and, and verse 33, we see the, 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 the truth is, is there and it is plain that the Spirit is moving through them and accomplishing things and they're preaching and people are coming to Christ. There is only one enemy that can hamper and stop the church, and that's this, internal sin. The sin of God's people, the willful, sinful, rebellious ignoring of God's glory and his honor and his dignity and his righteousness for our own service. That is the only thing that can stop the church when God's people do not take him seriously and sin however they please. And when the rest of the church then ignores it. Why such a harsh judgment? Luke said, or Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This is not, I stand on the street corner and pray loudly so that other people will see me. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not, I bring my gift, but I make sure it's all in coins. So that when I dump out the plastic bag that's got all my money in it, everybody's like, look at that mound. Wow, he's spiritual. That's the way the Pharisees practice their religion. Christianity is not about, Paul says, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised. It's not whether you give a lot or give a little. It's not, it's not what you do. It's who you are in your heart. And hypocrisy cannot be tolerated. And so God judges it when he sees it immediately. We sin because we are weak. Not because God is weak in delivering grace and sustaining power to us in times of need. We sin because it feels good, because it feels right, because it's easy, because at times it looks like our only option, because we've been feared into sinning because of our circumstances. We can agree as Christians that we're all sinners. Our, our present practice may be interrupted. We may be shocked when we find out that someone in our midst has committed a particular sin or that they're facing a problem or that they're battling an attitude or that they've got some addiction. But, but that doesn't change our fellowship. We shouldn't be like, oh no, that person has problems. They're a sinner. We're sinners, brothers and sisters. We admit that when we confess our need for Christ. We can admit that we all sin. And we can confess that sin openly without celebrating it and being like, you know what I did when I was a sinner? And being like, oh, isn't that funny? Ha ha. We can, we can confess our sin openly without minimizing it, without being hypocrites, without lying, without being cagey about it. Oh, I'm a big sinner. Really? Be specific. Without fear of being put out like, oh, you, you know, we're, we're allowed to say here that we're sinners, but we can't say that we occasionally tell lies. We can't say that, that, that in a moment of weakness we stole something and now we want to make it right. How do we, how do, we do that? We can't say you know, that, that we were harsh with our wife. We can't say that we judge other people. We've just got to say, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of, of forgiveness. We, no. We can be specific with one another, with brothers and sisters. Because we're called to help one another. Judgment on sin is real. And the church ought to be intolerant of sin while 
tolerating the fact that we are sinners. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment begins with the house of God because God is serious about sin. If you take refuge in the gospel of Christ, that means this. Your sins are canceled out, but your present actions and lack of action that displease God need to be confessed and dealt with, not hidden and tolerated, because God judges sin. What is the result of Ananias and Sapphira's death? The first is purification. Purification within the church. People realized that there was a cost of following Christ. It says that they feared and they would not associate with them. But then seconds later it says that people were coming to faith. People realized there was a cost. It's not just like, man, the music's good over there. I'm going to go to that church. There's a cost when we follow Christ. It means that we give up something of our own sovereignty and we trust in God's sovereignty. Matthew Henry says that this event was not a damp or a check to their holy joy, but it taught them to be serious in it and to rejoice with trembling. An electric fence is useful, but you don't hang out near one, right? Roads are useful, but you don't play in the middle of traffic because something that's good can also be dangerous. Purification, fear, but it also resulted in further mission. There were people who said healing is there and truth is there and grace is there and we want in, we want part of that. And the mission of the church was able to go forward because sin was purified out from it. Just a One or two closing applications before we finish. Let me just say this. Many people in our culture choose as their favorite Bible verse any of the few that Jesus spoke where he says, do not judge. I don't know what else it says in the Bible, but I know that it says don't judge. So don't judge me. Don't tell me that. It's like like the the presence of one verse in the Bible invalidates anything else it might have to say. In the same book that Jesus says, do not judge, meaning do not judge someone worthy of eter- unworthy of eternal life, Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, this implies judgment, you sinned against me, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It doesn't need to become this big thing. He sinned against me. Should I confront him? Right? Let me ask seven more people. No. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice that you have to own the fact that he sinned against you and be ready to defend it, right? Cutting back on unlimited free speech. Some Christians really irritate me because they, I love that. When I see that, I always want, I always write like, sorry, that was me uh, on people's Facebook status. You know, don't, don't talk like that talk directly. Don't tell the world to tell one person, right? Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, still keeping it on the down low, secret here. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Obviously, if this person will not listen when everyone's saying, you're sinning, you're sinning like this, you need to repent of this, then obviously that something bigger is a problem here. They don't understand the gospel or they've got pride that just dominates them. What is the point of judgment? The gospel involves judgment. There is no way to receive Christ without understanding first and foremost that we need to repent of our sins. God judges us in order that he might give us eternal life. You won't want salvation if you do not understand that you are a sinner in need of salvation. So judgment, in this case, teaches us that we all need grace. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. But judgment also comes that we might understand that there is a kind of judging that is loving. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We must battle for holiness in our lives that we might eventually see God. Because even though we possess the righteousness of Christ positionally, we are called to battle and rid ourselves from sin by sweat equity in the power of the Holy Spirit. See to it that no one, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15 of chapter 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Judgment comes that we might receive purification and grace. But finally, the purpose of discipline is to restore. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why is this here? Why is this story here? Let their wasted lives be to us an example of how not to be. And let us, when confronted with our own sins, respond with humility and confession and confronted with the sins of others, have a burden on ourselves not to judge them, but to, in God's grace and by God's power and for God's glory, deliver them from judgment. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy toward us. I pray that, that the seeds that have been planted would bear fruit of, of joy. Lord, may we fear lest any of us fall short of your glory. May we pursue your righteousness. May we walk in holiness. Father, we thank you that you take all of our sins in Christ. But this does not mean that you treat our sins lightly or that we can sin all you want because you'll just keep producing more grace. We ought to take our sins seriously. Father, I thank you for brothers and sisters who are brave enough to confront one another, brothers and sisters who are brave enough to confront me. Father, I pray for grace for our people as they are confronted in their sins for their joy and not for their destruction. May we flee to you. We thank you for the cross, which is the source of our righteousness. May we glory only in that and not in ourselves. We pray this all in the precious and sweet name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.